Hello and welcome back to Swim Bike Talk. Today I'm with Kenji Nina. Kenji is an accomplished athlete. He finished 14th at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics and he finished 15th in the World Triathlon Championship Series in 2022. Kenji represented Australia when he was younger and now represents Japan. Today we'll find out a bit more about this story and how he's become the athlete he is today. Kenji, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Kurt. Uh, hello, H- hello everyone. Uh, thanks for tuning in, and uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Kenji here. Yeah, <laughs> Kenji, thanks yeah. for firstly thanks for coming on. I appreciate uh, taking your time out of your day and having me here to speak with you. We'll dive straight into it. Firstly, I just want to know well how I've started every interview so far. I want to know your beginnings in the sport. I know you started quite young, and you went to other sports as tennis, footy, soccer. Uh, tell me about how you started in the sport. Yeah, so actually what was happening is I, I challenged a various uh, number of sports and that included like even gymnastics um, as well as, as as the ones you've mentioned. And uh, yeah, no, I, I just love sport generally. And uh, I also did a bit of swimming and uh, a little bit of running um, for cross-country purposes. And uh, our coach one day just decided, why don't you give triathlon a go? And at that point in time, I think triathlon was a very new sport, uh, having in the 2000 Olympics was the first time we ever had uh, triathlon in the Olympic Games, and it was actually in Sydney. So, yeah, no, so from there, I I thought triathlon would be a, a great sport for me to enter um, because there's three sports rather than just the one. And, uh, yeah, I fell in love with the sports, and uh, I, I believe I fully committed at around 18 years old, yeah. So you were you started the sport in school like early high school? Do you think? Or? Yeah, yeah. So I was introduced to it around early high school. Yeah, I mean, we Kurt and I both went actually through the school sport WA system, and uh, we we both competed at nationals. We had one crossover year, twenty ten yeah. in Adelaide. Yeah. I yeah. do remember actually a few years back. I think Tri Stars as well. We were. Yeah, actually, that was the thing. We had the, in Perth, it originated with something called the Wheat Bix Triathlon. And, uh, that was actually on mountain bikes or whatever, I think. Yeah. And putting laces on shoes. We were, we were old school. And I, I believe it was in the city. Yeah. Um, that sounds about right. Yeah. And, um, it actually, yeah, it, it was a very short triathlon, maybe 150 or 200 meter swim and like, Maybe a three k cycle and, and like a one k run or something like that. Kids triathlon distance, which is somehow uh, coming to adults now, but yeah. we'll get back to that. Yeah, that's right. It's um, yeah, it's a bit of a circle, but uh, yeah. yeah, but yeah. So starting off through that tri stars program and week triathlon, which is great for getting kids into the sport, and then going through high school state teams. Uh, how did you uh, find out about the state teams sort of program, and like where did you go? You started doing the Tri-Stars and then realise you can make it to the state team or... So, Tri-Stars was sort of just, I don't know, I think I think we saw an ad in the newspaper. So, I, at that point, I hadn't really been introduced to triathlon as such. It was more or less something that we saw an advertisement for and, and we thought, well, it's like, something interesting. Um, again, I'm not sure whether it still continues, but... They do have programs to go into. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Um, but basically, when the run coach um, suggested that uh, try triathlon, um, my first race was actually school sport WA selection race for um, school sport nationals, and that was in Shelley. Uh, do you do you remember? 
Oh, I'm a little bit too young. I do know it was held there, yeah. but I, uh, yeah, a little bit too young to have done yeah, that. Yeah, okay. So when I first started, um, predominantly, we all raced in Shelley. Um, there is a bit of an age gap between Kurt and I, but uh, yeah, there it was. Um, yeah, so the qualifications were, I, I don't, well, I don't remember how far it went back to, but I believe about six athletes. You get six, yeah. Yeah, and, um, yeah, so we swam in, in Shelley in, in the Swan Swan River and then rode up and down. Um, I forgot the name of the Avenue or Drive. Or yeah, Snow to Shelley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Riverton Drive. Yeah, yeah, Riverton Drive. And, uh, and then ran, uh, I believe, on the footpath. I think it was our back course. But I actually won my first race, really. Um, and then I got selected and the other athlete who was close to me who was a great swimmer at the time and a good cyclist was Brad Brown. Um, yeah, I don't – he – from memory, um, I don't believe he really aimed beyond um, the TEP, which was like the Triathlon Excellence Program at the time. So I maybe around 17 years old, I raced against him. So Yeah, yeah. okay. And then you made it from there. Oh, well. Fast forward a few years through the school sport and uh, you finished school. Well, what are you looking at here? So you finish school and you've got few options as everyone does. You can go to uni or go to work, start working or continue triathlon or both. So you, you did the both, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've predominantly done education and triathlon hand in hand for the whole entirety of, of my triathlon career um, up until the last two, three years now. Um, where I've fully concentrated on uh, triathlon. So what? how far did you want to take triathlon at that point? Like, obviously, we know where you've come to now, but when you finished school, did you think, I'll oh, just you know, keep doing it for a bit of fun, go do these races, or did you go, I really want to make it to the top? So when I was young, um, just like any kid really who's involved with sport, I always had the ambition to be an Olympian. So... I wanted to take whichever sport it was. It wasn't necessarily triathlon, but as it turned out, triathlon was to be the sport that I believe I had the capacity to, to potentially make it as an Olympian. And uh, I was pretty driven from that point. Yeah. The finishing school, you got finished school in 2010, and then uh, through to 2012, you got selected for Junior World Championships. That's, I can imagine, a big step forward for you and what would have really given you strides and motivation in your career how did that feel and how did that come about yeah so basically around the exit of high school so after con graduation i went to i was training with paul mckay actually um and then uh, i was with the triathlon excellence program and they sort of advised well why don't you try and expose yourself to uh, a higher quality of training partners or like a high, higher quality environment that is more triathlon specific and I decided to contact uh, some people and actually it was Jack Hickey's father who was Jack Hickey was uh, someone who uh, an athlete who lived in New South Wales and his father ran a triathlon program but he was pushing his son towards training with Chris Lang. And Chris Lang was the coach of Brad Carterfelt. And for those tuning in, I'm not sure whether you remember Brad Carterfelt, but he won multiple World Series events and uh, he was actually a world champion, I believe, at one stage. 
that's in my memory as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So <laughs> he, he was one of my idols, actually. Him and Peter Robertson were my two idols, and um, I thought that was and I had the opportunity to train with with one of the world's best um, at the time. I, I thought that was a great opportunity. Um, unfortunately, as it turned out, that Bray Carterfeld, after three months of my arrival, uh, left the group. But uh, I mean, these things happen. Um, elite athletes at the highest level always search for the the next thing, and I, I feel like um, I mean, Bray Carterfeld maybe uh, would have a different opinion. But to me, he probably felt that the environment had uh, hit its point where he's he needed to find somewhere else to increase his potential, not potential, but capacity at, at that level. Yeah, I agree, and I think a lot of athletes can feel that sometimes as well. It's in that situation and then need a new avenue and change to kind of keep progressing. You get a bit stagnant. Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, at, at all levels, um, if, it, I mean, it, it's a hard one because you, your coach or the person who you've been working with sees you at the worst and best times. So you develop a partnership and it's a very close relationship, almost like having a relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend for that matter. So it's often very difficult to leave, but um, if the athlete feels so strongly um, towards fulfilling their potential or believing that the program is not allowing themselves to reach their full capacity, then I believe it is time to move on. You're exactly right. I agree. And uh, well, we'll move back to your story. So 2012, you got, I believe it's your first World Cup in Tom Yong. Got selected to go there. Top twenty finish is pretty cool for your first World Cup, I think. Um, going through twenty thirteen, you've got some pretty decent results again, third and fourth in some Asian Cups. Twenty fourteen under twenty three World Champs. That's another step. Um, junior World Champs, obviously, you've made that already. The under twenty three is a step up, double the distance um, competitions. I'd say even harder. You've got more driven people still competing at that level. What do you find? might be testing your memory a little bit as well. Between 2012 and 2014, do you find any differences or changes in what you were doing? Or Yeah, no, absolutely. So what actually happened is while I was in Queensland between... Um, actually, in 2012, I was in Queensland, uh, in Western Australia, um, leading up until Junior Worlds, but then I went back to the East Coast in Queensland for 2013, 2014. The thing that I found the most difficult was racing junior worlds and coming 14. To be honest, I thought, given my result at Tong Yong World Cup, and given that I was a junior and uh, my run at the time was uh, one of the top in Australia for that matter, um, it, it was actually a bit of a slap in the face. I, I really struggled um, to move on from junior because I, I thought I would do much better. And how the race went out in Auckland at Junior Worlds was I, <clears throat> I actually had a really bad swim, which was quite unusual for me, um, having actually come third out of the water, I think, in Tongyong in the elite race. So I had to ride really hard to get back and I, I, I sort of lost my confidence um, going onto the run and I sort of threw it out. And in the bin, so... Um, after Junior Worlds, after that race, um, 
actually, before that, um, I, I should add, uh, I had pneumonia so severe that um, I was coughing up blood up and up until race day. Oh, uh, in the shower, I remember um, swimming the morning, well, the day before, thinking, "Oh, I've actually swum really well," and then I've gone to cough and I've coughed up blood again. Um, in the and it came out in the mucus. So I've uh, obviously overtrained at some point, and I got extremely sick. So, but uh, that that's definitely part of it. I mean, you, as an athlete, you always want to be the best you can. And I was so driven that I was willing to put myself in in serious sickness um, for the potential to be world class. So. That's always been a habit of mine. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah. And, and anyway, so moving from junior worlds to under 23 worlds, um, there was about a year where I, I was fairly uninterested in triathlon, uh, admittingly. And for about six months while I was training, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't into it. I wasn't sure whether I was going to continue, actually. Um, but then one of another coach, uh, sort of suggested, well, if you're serious about trying to make it, why don't you um, try and be with our program at the Queensland Academy of Sport, which is the equivalent of the Western Australian Institute of Sport in Queensland, and the coach there was Stephen Moss. So I decided to follow his his guidance or follow his suggestion, which meant that I had to leave Chris Lang as a coach, um, and then I worked with Stephen Moss. And together we made quite a lot of improvement. Um, but Stephen Moss's program, I don't know whether many people have experienced it. It is, it is an extremely high volume, high intensity program. And I think a lot of people struggle with it. But fortunately I was able, I was robust enough to get through it. And I made quite a lot of forward progression with it. Um, and in 2014, I came eighth at Tizivaras World Cup. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, the World Championships in uh, 2014 in Edmonton was another disappointment. Uh, I remember running with the leaders for about six to seven kilometers and then absolutely exploding. And then Matt Baker, who finished 10th, I believe, caught me in the last 500 meters. Um, I wasn't going anywhere. And... Uh, yeah, I was disappointed again with another 14th in the, in the race, yeah. Uh, well, make it seem a 14th, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I know how disheartening that can be as well, to be right in it, right up until the last moment, and then um, just having it all come crashing down right before the end. But that's the way racing is, isn't it? You have some good ones, you have some that it plays out like that, and yes, it is hard to kind of build back after them and think, what, what am I going to do? How is this? Gonna get fixed next time. It can be tough. No, absolutely. I, I think the same at any level, um, or even if that's has application and work for that matter, or studies, or, or whatever ambition you have. Um, when you put a lot of effort and you are driven to succeed, and sometimes it doesn't happen as quickly as you want it, um, you become demotivated and you lose track of things. Um, and you really struggle for a moment there. But I think you need to overcome these points of time because they're very important for the future in the sense of whether you want to 
work in a job or whether you want to, for whatever ambition you have, you need to overcome barriers and that's just part of it. I agree. Well, moving in from, uh, moving on from 2014 through to 2015, I know this was another tough, probably I think you said one of your toughest years you've had. Uh, so it's coming, leading into Rio 2016, obviously you would have had ambitions to try and do your best to qualify for that. Uh, and you started off the year, just looking at your results here. Australian champs, third in Australian champs. I think you said that qualified you for under 23 worlds again. Um, Chengdu World Cup, 14th. Again, <laughs> um, uh, you were racing for a French Grand Prix, and I know we talked about these before where they're just hard racing, so many people doing and uh, so much on the line. And what, what happened there? So it was actually a relay. It got changed from uh, a triathlon to a relay because uh, a ju- uh, it was a triathlon relay and it got changed to a duathlon relay um, because of the weather or the current. I forgot, but it was in Valence in France. Um, it's quite popular to have a French Grand Prix in Valence. Um, Damien, who's the Valence triathlon um, court, well, I mean, he runs a team like a French Grand Prix team there. He's... Uh, He's very keen um, to host events uh, such as the French Grand Prix there. But, uh, yeah, so unfortunately for me, there was a bit of carpet um, and there was a pothole underneath the carpet. Obviously, I couldn't see it because the carpet was laid over it and there was a rock underneath it and then I'm running barefoot going from the run to the bike or the bike to the run, actually, the bike to the run because it was the second run and I busted my foot. Completely. It was a third metatarsal complete fracture, and it was in the end. Um, I I thought I I, I was only a, like a, a very hairline fracture type scenario where it wasn't a serious problem, but it was a complete fracture, and it was about an inch apart. My the the bones were about an inch apart, and um, I the problem was I had finished that run. Um, on a completely broken foot. And I, I remember it. I remember feeling weird in the sense that I couldn't push off <laughs> the ground and I, I was getting nowhere. So I basically was hobbling and I, I thought, oh, well, maybe, maybe I'm just tired or something like that. I just, I just ran through it. I mean, you have a lot of adrenaline while racing. And then because I ran one leg and I also busted the other foot. So <laughs> the other foot was, was, um, it was ligament damage, a complete. Uh, it was a that was a severe, that was severe on both left and right feet um, situation, and each one of them w- was going to take about three months. But having them both together meant that I couldn't do absolutely anything swim, bike, or run. And at the time, I was studying actuarial science, uh, um, and that was taxing enough. So it was a point where. I when when you actually have these injuries that are that severe, you the first stage is denial. So you just think and it's not gonna take long. It's not gonna take long to come back or you're just gonna be fit soon and it's just gonna be temporary or two weeks, but as it happened it was three months and or four months and I, I couldn't walk. I was on crutches for the first month or so, six weeks even. I couldn't, I couldn't walk. So basically I had to teach myself to walk, run, swim, cycle for that matter, all over again. 
basically from scratch. So it was, it was so depressing actually, because as an athlete, we all understand that it's part of like uh, our identity. It's a part of our lifestyle. Um, when you think of us, you probably think sport for our, our sakes as triathlon. But I was unable to do anything and I got extremely depressed. Um, I didn't really know what to do. Uh, and I, I mean, fortunately, I had study um, and I could just do well in, in my academic ambitions. And I actually did very well. In the, in the period of time that I had this problem. But uh, everything, nothing tasted good. It was a really, really strange feeling. Nothing nothing in life tasted good. Nothing in life. Like, I, I just remember just wallowing in self-pity, really. Yeah. When, yeah. Well, when everything you're doing, everything you know, just gets taken away from you like that and you've got your dreams and hopes on the line and, you can't do it all from something so small as well. It's just, as you said, it was such a tough time for you. And do you think coming through it, obviously going through something like that is horrible and I wouldn't wish it upon anyone, but do you think it's helped you coming out of that, coming back into racing as well to be mentally stronger and know that you can, look, you push through a broken foot in a run. That's uh, things you do in a race. But do you think, leading in when you got back into the sport, uh, when you were able to again, it helped you push further and really do what you want to do? Um, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, ordinarily I would have said, yes, um, these barriers that you come across with barriers or incidents or whatever you want to call them, um, you, if you overcome them, it makes it you stronger as a person. Um, I would like to say yes, but at the time, and it, it almost broke me. Um, it really did. It almost broke me. Um, and I, I just, I, I, then after that, um, I didn't have any results for two years because uh, I really struggled to run um, post, post that and um, cycle or swim like back to where I was. I mean, at the time, I was fighting Jake, Bert Whistle, and Declan Wilson, and the idea was to podium at Chicago World Championships in 2015. Um, and it was uh, Jake almost made Rio Olympics, um, and it was a really clutch uh, final race between him and Ryan Fisher to make the 2016 Rio Olympic team. And to me, I thought, given my ability, that I was quite well-rounded across swim, bike, and run. I, I thought I could, I could, could have been in contention for potentially a spot. I mean, that's my opinion. That may not be necessarily the perspective of everyone involved, but I, I thought I was on the correct trajectory for it. Um, but it wasn't to be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. As you said, you were on a good trajectory, and lots of people are, and you don't know how it would have played out. Is didn't happen no one can tell what would happen you could have made it could have been no spot as well so it's past of the past and you move past it and moving back you getting back into the sport again and going into another olympic cycle well you're still studying at university as well at the same time i believe you finished your studies in 2019 uh yeah so 
so I went from actuarial science to an honours in applied mathematics at UWA. The, the reason why I did that was because I wanted to stay more relevant in my field. Um, and I thought by extending it to an honours, um, I would be, it would be easier for me to walk into job type scenario post trial if that was the case. So I just wanted to stay relevant in my area of expertise. Um, but uh, I still had triathlon as an ambition, and I, at the start of 20, I believe it was 2018, so two years post the incident, I started to get much better. But already at that time, in I had we had organised with the national coach, Jamie Turner, a camp to be done in Vittorio Gasteiz, um, and it was to be with uh, the best of triathlon Australia, really, apart from Jake, who was, I believe, with, already with Joe Ophelia at the time. But we had Matt Hauser, uh, we had Ryan Bailey over there, we had, um, yeah, I mean, Aaron Royal, I believe, was already training with the Brownleys at that time. He had just left Jamie Turner, but it, it was, we had uh, Natalie Van Coven was there too, Tamsin Moanaville, when she was performing well, but it, they, they had like a, a Amelia Kretz, who was a Canadian. You had Tyler Mistelchuk was there as a Canadian too. You really had um, Ty- Taylor Reed was there. Um, Max Stapley was there. We, we, had a, we had a really good group and it was a good bunch of guys and it, and it was probably one of, <clears throat> one of the most enjoyable camps I've ever been to in my life. Actually, I, even still now, like, I, I enjoyed everything that I did. We had a good bunch of guys and we liked each other and we really were pushing each other's limits. Um, Max Stackley, I don't know whether, I mean, most, most of you know if, if you follow triathlon still, I mean, he's a phenomenal swimmer, especially in the pool for that matter. Taylor Reed is a phenomenal swimmer in the open water. Um, and then you had Ryan Bailey at the time was probably one of the strongest guys on the circuit. Um, this is pre-Blumenfeld time, but he was one of the strongest cyclists on the circuit. And running, I mean, you know, we, we had all of us were capable of running. Um, so I, I think we just pushed each other. I think that was a great, great group. I forgot to mention even Matt Hauser, so it shows that the quality of, of the people there. I mean, Matt Hauser, if the guys have been watching, like, uh, has done so well last year. He's made an amazing amount of progress so very happy for him and his good great mate of mine so um but one week prior to that um before i'd even been introduced to these guys i mean i, I knew ryan before but before i had trained with them um the ceo ceo of triathlon australia at the time gave me a call and said you're out of high performance um and it was really difficult for me because uh i didn't know how to fund it because i had already organized the flights and if I had to pay accommodation at in Europe, like this is like three or four thousand dollars, let alone the races that you want to do in Europe. I'm sure Kurt understands how expensive it is to every triathlon. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, but um, to go from something that you think is completely supported to something that's not supported at all was sort of ridiculous. One, one week out, I thought anyway, and. Um, yeah, but Jamie Turner actually stepped in and said, look, we'll just write you in as a training partner for Ryan Bailey and 
we can support you financially as a training partner. You just share in the smaller room with Brian Bailey. And to me, that was enough. Like that, that was, that was more than enough for what I expected because I, I was thrown out of the, the high performance program with Triathlon Australia. I had nothing. Like I had, I was a uni student at the time running out of cash. And, um, basically Jamie Turner gave me another life in, in, again, um, which I was very grateful for. And then he even suggested for me to race the local races in Spain. And then I made quite a lot of cash straight away in the first three weeks and enough to support myself for the rest of the European season. So, um, fortunate for him. I mean, many people have different and varying, very, varying perspectives of Jamie Turner. But for me, he went out of his way to help. So, uh, that was, I was very grateful for that. Yeah. I think oh, that's one thing. Incredible about triathlon is the people that will come out to help you when you're in a spot of bother or when you really, if you're showing how much you want something and you hit a barrier and you can't find a way around it, there's most of the time someone who's willing to help and whether it's advice, giving you cash or whatever, someone will help you try and get through that point because they can see the potential you've got. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know what it's the potential but or the person or what, whatever, but... Uh, Triathlon's a sport where you can't do by yourself. You know, you, you know, all of us in the sport uh, are here because of the generosity of many people. Um, this, that's undeniable, undeniable at whatever level. Triathlon is too expensive as a sport for you not, for you to be either you come from a very wealthy background or, or you work an, a ridiculous amount, which even then I, I really, I would struggle to believe that you're able to fully support yourself but even then like I'm sure Kurt's the same like I've been helped all over the place I've had people homestay me like Brittany Forster's parents uh, who trained with Chris Lane used to help me out all the time like I, I had people you know like wherever I was in Queensland like um, I was staying with Stephen Moss and one of the ladies who was renting off she she helped me lots and like she was going out of her way to help me like all these people were providing me with food trying to find ways so I could self-support myself like you know the generosity of so many is prolongs your life in the sport and and you're very lucky yeah yeah that's exactly right I've had very similar experiences people help me out homestays a huge help and show you around where to go the place that you're in and yeah it's incredible the sport that comes out in the community the triathlon no absolutely yeah uh, well, moving in, moving on from that, do you now represent Japan? So, given the the impasse you had, uh, you had another opportunity with Japan. How did you realize that to come around? Because you weren't a Japanese citizen before, were you? No, your mum's Japanese. And uh, how how did that opportunity come around? So, what actually happened was, um, so I was with Jamie Turner, and then. We sort of came to the point where I was still not part of the system and actually I was in Montreal. This was the biggest thing. I was, uh, I had worked from my perspective, I had worked really hard to make it to the, to the next level. And I first represented Australia at, at my first ever uh, World Series event and that was in Montreal. And within 24 hours of arrival, um, 
the high performance director basically sat me down and said, even if you come top 10 or top 15, we're not going to look at you for future World Series events. This is a once-off because Ryan Bailey was injured at the time and Jamie Turner advised us as you being the next best potential person to take his place. And he said, well, we got, I understand that uh, we're not funding this trip. Um, and I was completely broke at the time, I was busted. And he said, well, how about I pay for your trip if you're a domestic for Jake Birdwhistle? And Jake Birdwhistle, one week before, actually had a, a great race in Edmonton, I believe. I think he finished uh, second or, yeah, second or third. He actually miscounted the laps, I'm pretty sure. And he had to jump over the barrier and then you know, I think he got outscripted by Moller. But I, I think uh, he finished second or third, so he was in great form. So it was a relatively, I mean, it's not relatively, it was a legitimate call. So I, I thought, well, okay, if, uh, if they're not going to give me any future starts, then how, how about I give it a crack? And, uh, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I was so, yeah, so grateful to have the opportunity to race the World Series because it was one of my dreams to represent um, the country at a World Series event because it's the pinnacle, basically, of triathlon, of uh, draft legal triathlon. So, anyway, I thought if I can get more starts, then potentially I could, push my way through the system because as everyone knows if you get results it just you know they're, they're going to look at you they have to look at you so I just went with that perspective and so unfortunately what actually happened in the race I made the the main front group probably the front group and uh, just missed the breakaway really but um, my role was a domestic for Jake so that wasn't a big deal for me so I thought oh well he'll probably be in the main group um, so I remember if we're going to the front, to the middle, to the back, and then to the real back, and hit, that's where he was, unfortunately. And uh, I basically gave my race up to, to ride him, or attempt to ride him back into the main group. And he eventually got there, and uh, yeah, I think he was just so tired, um, he ran 37 minutes. Yeah, so it was uh, so as a joint effort, the result was uh, pretty feeble. Uh, I think it was like forty seconds or something like that. Um, to be absolutely honest, uh, I know he didn't have a great day, and his his potential was so high, and I agree with that, especially at the time, given that he just played in the week before. But I mean, I I could have done. I believe personally that I, uh, if if we if the high performance director told me, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, you know, but it's hindsight, and he took the risk, and I was happy to take the risk. And um, but the high performance director came up to me after the race and said, "Oh, that's a great job. We look at you to potentially do this in the future." And mixed team relay is this is this is it for you, basically. You're either going to be a domestic for us or potential mixed team relay athlete, and that's it. And I thought, especially after working so hard to get to this level of competition, I thought, well, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit around and be a domestic for someone and have the, 
risk and some days could be good, some days could be bad, but I'm not going to sacrifice all this training and especially also the support of other people. There's a lot of people, as we just said in the background uh, before, um, that allow you to continue in the sport. I wasn't willing to, to, to basically say, oh, can you please continue to support me? But you won't, I won't be able to be a potential Olympian as an individual. I'm only going to be able to do this. Like, I, I think that's, that's too much to, too much to ask from, from one mum and dad and all your supporters at the time. It's just, it's just not realistic. So I thought, all right, well, that's it. Um, triathlon is done, uh, from my perspective because, um, I made it to World Series. Maybe that's it. Um, that's no, not too bad. No, that's, that's pretty small. So I thought about getting a job and I actually sat some exams to like, uh, aptitude tests rather than exams uh, for jobs um, uh, as investment banking or insurance and various other things and I, I got offers and they were quite they were very good financial offers so I thought well alright then maybe this is it but um, I then got a phone call because Patrick Kelly at the time had, had uh, now started coaching uh, Triathlon Japan and uh, Triathlon Japan was wanted to make a, a big step forward, I suppose, trying to bring the males, in particular at the time, to being more world class. At, at that time, they had uh, a lot of strong females, but their males were were struggling a little bit. So um, they thought, as an incentive, why don't you bring Kenji along? So they gave me a call up and said, basically, well. We will give you the opportunity to race the Olympic Games if you earn the spot. And I thought, well, it's a big decision. And I sat, sat I remember sitting down with the family. I was like, well, what's going to happen is I'm going to live in Japan for the next three or four years or however long it's going to be until the 2020 Olympic Games. And uh, if I want to make the Olympic team, this is my shot. This is it. So I decided to say um, I, I'm just going to attempt to qualify for the Olympic Games for Japan and it sort of started like that. Yeah. And there's a two-year changeover period with the uh, triathlon as well, so that would have been oh, that would have been cutting it pretty fine, wouldn't it? So actually what happened was um, there's actually it's a one-year, but you know, it's, it's typically, I don't remember anyone in history, apart from maybe one person that the federation can make it two years rather than one year. And in this case, Triathlon Australia went out of their way to make it two years so that I would miss the 2020 Olympic Games at the time. We didn't know it was going to be postponed due to coronavirus, but they went out of their way to make it difficult and they made it terribly difficult. So uh, that was a bit of a, a pickle, um, but there was a lot of negotiation. Unfortunately, I can't answer that with uh, specific detail, but it was a lot of negotiation between the Japanese Federation, the Australian Federation, and they came up to a solution. Yeah, so they made it one year, which in the end they didn't need because of the coronavirus situation. They got extended one year, but yeah, it was definitely... I definitely went into that uh, transition period not knowing whether I could potentially even represent Japan, but I thought, oh, 
know I'm it's it's, it's more prosperous than racing for potentially Australia because I, I wasn't in the national performance program. I wasn't part of anything. Everything was going to have to be self-funded, which is okay, but I think it was a better solution to get a job in the situation. And then moving to Japan, so you packed up everything, went over to Japan. Did you speak Japanese at the time? At the time, no. I, I, I barely spoke Japanese. Um, yeah, I, I had nothing. I literally had nothing. Um, and we were in a share house with three other athletes at the start. And then after about six months, all of them left because they had problems with the national coach. So I was by myself for three years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So by yourself, is that training by yourself in Japan or? Yeah. So basically the, the, the biggest thing that, that came across me, which is luck and which potentially could be fate, uh, I don't know what, what you want to call it, was that uh, the Japanese coach, national coach actually started a relationship with Norway with Arild. Um, and Arild allowed me to train with them on camps, which spanned about four to six weeks. And we did that once a year until 2021, uh, no, but basically it was once a year. So about six weeks in, in throughout the year that I was exposed to the Norwegian system. So you're spending 46 weeks a year training by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Which- Another strong mental blow. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a, it's a mental blow in, in a place that you can't speak the language properly at that point. Um, and yeah, I mean, entering the swimming pool, understanding the culture, you know, even putting the bins out at a particular days, you have to separate the recycle. I mean, these things aren't big, but it's completely different to being in Australia. And, yeah, yeah, being in Australia or any other Western Yeah, country. exactly. Yeah. Like Japan's an incredible place and I love yeah. it there that I know how different it is and going there and how did you cope with all those culture changes and change of food as well? I mean, the food I was always all right with. I think that's fine. But I I think I also went across there to sort of find my Japanese pathway, being half Japanese but never really exposing myself in Australia. So that was a major motive of mine also to go across to to Japan. Um, I should have mentioned that earlier, but it it definitely was. Um, And... I eventually managed to get better at Japanese um, and it was extremely lonely for a long time. It was a lot of dark days, but the, the light that I saw was uh, the potential to race at the Olympic Games. So. And then, well, 2020 came around where you were fully representing Japan then. What did you think when the coronavirus happened and everything locked down, Olympics postponed a year? What was going through your head then? Yeah, so, I mean, that was a very difficult time because I think um, for a lot of people, but actually fortunately for me, um, it allowed me more time to get better at the sport. That was one of my yeah. other questions, actually, whether you think um, COVID benefited you yeah. to get stronger for the next yeah. year. So. Yeah, no, I believe it did. Um, absolutely. Yeah, it benefited me hugely. Yeah. And then moving on to 20... I think it was the end of 2020. Carl Vivari, this is another race that uh, I wanted to ask about. I remember watching this, I think it's pretty late at night here, and uh, yeah. I screamed at the TV at one point. Uh, it was like you had a killer swim breakaway on the bike, but you were four of you. Yeah. One of the hardest courses you've got in triathlon, and uh, coming down through that little tunnel about one or two K to go, leading into transition. Yeah, I think it was 1K to go, yeah. Yeah, you only had a cob section. 
So in the break that year in 2020, uh, actually, so I'd raced Hamburg and had like one of my smaller breakthrough races. So I raced as elite and finished uh, 20th. Uh, as an elite um, at the World Championships, which was a, a great progression for me. And um, so, yeah, and then the next week was Carlo Vivari, which was an Olympic distance. And because the lack of races, everyone who raced the World Championships basically raced um, Carlo Vivari. And uh, I was in the breakaway with Vincent Louis, Jonas Schomburg, Marco Devey, and uh, Vasco Velasa. So, Vasco Velasa had just come second at the World Championships, and I think Vincent Louis had just won. So good breakaway, yeah. Then. So it was a, a, a phenomenal breakaway to be in, and I was, it was, like, oh, I'm having a race of my life. We had two minutes on the main group, and it was, you know, the way I was running, I was like, for sure, this is my podium. You know, even if I lose to Vasco and Vince, the other guys, I was pretty confident about racing against them off the bike but uh yeah with one one k left to go um yeah we we entered the tunnel and one of the athletes in front of me hit the only pothole in the tunnel and then took me down and schomberg was behind me and he avoided it but he flattered his tire to avoid it because he pulled on the brake so hard so we at like 50k an hour i was busted and i i thought i broke my wrist on both of them and actually for six weeks, I, I couldn't I couldn't catch water and I couldn't hold my bike properly. So it was, uh, and then I remember what actually happened was six weeks later, after I'd gone to altitude with the Norwegians, we had Arcachena, which yeah. was uh, another another very race. difficult course. Another very difficult course, but having trained with the Norwegians, I thought I was good enough for that, and I, I believe I was. But I mean, my wrists were still weren't great. What actually happened was. Um, I didn't have a great spin, but what actually happened in the descent, one of the guys overcooked corner, and we're going like 65k now, and uh, yeah, he, he he crashed, and he brought down a poor kid just behind him, and I remember his wheel just folded, and it was just, I yeah, having just crashed in Kalavibari, I just couldn't believe that I was about to crash again, and I ended up crashing again. And uh, after Carlo Vivari, I forgot to mention uh, the bike was busted. So <laughs> I had actually bought, um, I spent almost all my money buying Christian's spare bike, which was a S-Works Venge and was a beautiful bike. I loved it to bits, but uh, I crashed on my first race on that bike. And I was pretty devastated. But uh, actually, I went through a lot of dark days after that. But uh, I eventually raced the national championships in Tokyo Daiba and won the national championships. And that, that to me, was Hojo really tested me on sort of the last 500 metres. So it, it finished off on a high. So 2020 was a great year for me. And then leading into that, did, did that give you selection to uh, Olympics or was that a bit later? No, that was a bit later. Uh, I was only selected uh, officially in March, I believe, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And leading into that, that's did you kind of know you were going to get selected before? Or? No. Um, no, it really did come down to, I mean, Hojo, what, what, one of the athletes got a selection at Yokohama 2021 yeah world series race and I I I had won the Asian championships 
like two weeks before and I I, I, I didn't know what happened. I, I think I choked potentially on Yokohama. I just had the worst race of my life and I just lost an all spot. So I there was only one spot left and it wasn't actually taken by Hojo. And so Hojo and I had to face off in like basically a sudden death like uh, two two uh, two races and yeah I, I eventually uh, beat him in the end to qualify but it was really clutch I had a cramp and I remember stopping and they gave him 12 13 seconds in with K to go and I had to run 13 seconds into him to qualify and I and I did it uh, I think I probably ran the fastest 1k I've ever run in my life. It only would have been close to 235, probably. Like, I just, I, I didn't have a choice. I, I, I hadn't worked so hard, lived it by myself, and I just remember, I was like, I can't, I can't end it like this. You know, yeah. Everything on the line after yeah, yeah, all that down to 1k. Exactly. And I, I pulled out probably the best 1k I've ever done in my life for that. But yeah. Wow. And then getting selected for the Olympics, that's dream come true to this peak of the career. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was, it was an amazing feeling. As, yeah, I'm sure many people guess, but uh, after all that hardship to, to manage to get my dream, well, one first step of my dream, um, I I hope to uh, better that um, eventually. But uh, yeah, the first step, massive step forward, uh, changed my life. I think after everything you've been through, like it's incredible how much you've had. I remember even going back to the first time I remember watching you at School Sport Nationals in Adelaide 2010. That was my first Nationals. I think it was your last and crashed out there, I believe. I don't know what happened, but um, so, so much. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was just like it was, you know, if you, if you talk about an athlete who's had a roller coaster of a career, it's mine. I mean, that's been an absolute disaster at points, but I, I I made it to the Olympics and I hope to do one more and better my result. So uh, I'm at the stage where I'm going to throw the fridge. I'm going to throw everything I got, every piece of wisdom, every piece of support, every every part of my intuition, the initiative. I'm just going to throw it, and um, we'll just see what happens. You know, I'm just going to go in there hungry, and that's there's nothing more I can do. I think exactly from 2024, it's the your results have been through the roof. Like. Well, Carl Vivari, that would have been an awesome result if it came through. Uh, 2021, the Olympic Games, 14th place, incredible result. An incredible result considering the opportunities you had three, four years prior uh, where you didn't think you were going to make it through. And then finishing off 2022, the year just gone by, 15th place in the World Championship Series. It's just, you're going next level. And it looks like the next couple of years as well, you've got Olympic selection again. Is that this year or? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, two autos are this year, um, opportunity. So, um, I just, yeah, I'm going to have to deliver a performance that I believe I'm capable of doing. Um, and, uh, yeah. That leads into Paris next year. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The plan. Yeah. Well, touch a little bit. Just a couple more things. I know this has gone quite a while, but Super League. Super League is another sort of area you're stepping into. And I know you do like that shorter sort of distance a bit more. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, it's exciting. You know, it's a, it's a change from the norm. And uh, I, 
think it's also a, a lot more interesting to the general public, especially people who haven't really experienced triathlon or, or really uh, follow the traditional part of triathlon. But it goes potentially swim, bike, run, run, back, swim, and swim, bike, run, or it goes and they, they change the order and you don't really know who's going to win. I mean, it, it's they're throwing out all these different variations of the sport, but it's still triathlon. And it's done on circuits that are very, you know, very technically advanced. And especially under fatigue, these corners are starting to get harder and harder and harder. And your sense of uh, your feel on the bike and, and it's, it's getting worse, but you still have to still have to concentrate, you know. But I, I, I love that. I, I love the sport. I love Super League because... It's a it's a different dynamic that keeps you on your toes, and I, I think it allows you to make use of your abilities across all three. Whereas traditionally in triathlon, with a mass start, and it's, if it's not broken, it's not broken up really out of the swim. You can't really express your ability to perform on the swim, and even on the bike with that many people, it's really hard to break away. It really is. So Super League segments each of the legs distinctly so that you can actually apply pressure and because there's not so many people in the race there's less potential for you to be chased down you can just go for it you can you know uh, and it's also creating a, a like a really good positive community environment amongst the athletes because you can you can talk you know you, you know with each other you, you're not with your federation at the time you're just with a bunch of other athletes and Typically, we all get along together and we just enjoy it. And it brings you as well, you've got the indoor racing, the uh, arena games, which is a whole different ball game again. Yeah, the arena games are uh, really tough. It's a bloody tough sport, arena games. Like going flat out and then having to go onto a trainer and usually it's in an extremely humid environment and it's just murder, really, because... Again, it's a different dynamic because there's no drafting in the latest arena game. So it's basically going from a swim time trial to a bike time trial to a run time trial, back to a run time trial to a bike time trial to a swim time trial. And like, it's just, it's just murder, you know? Yeah. It's just whoever can take it the longest. And that's, that's what it's getting to. Like when you get all these guys in well, Super League or normal racing, everyone finishing in such a close spot. It's who, can take it the longest and who can make the right decisions at the right time. It's just incredible how close the racing's getting now and for you to be right up there and all that, um, you know, from where you've been and the experiences you've gone through, I think it's great. And I'm really happy for how you're going as well. I really appreciate that, mate. Yeah, no, I, I, I really enjoy it. I mean, you know, I just love, you know, the fast style of racing. I mean, I have to understand and I have to pursue the traditional side of triathlon as well, which is the Olympic distance. Yeah. Do you think you'll go long course in the future? Um, I think I'll maybe do one or two. I would like to race Kona once, but I don't see it as being uh, a future for me um, in the long term. I aim to actually study medicine. Um, yeah, that, that's my ambition outside of triathlon. Yeah. Well, that's great. Another few years of study. Well, yeah. you've yeah. already done that uh, what, seven study yeah well i mean i yeah i mean it's yeah basically yeah you'll be one knowledgeable doctor yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) potentially yeah well we'll move in we are running uh 
little long on the time, but we'll move into the five for all questions I've got here. So uh, I sent you these a little bit earlier. You might have had a bit of a think. First one is, what's the earliest you've blown up in a race? Oh, well, I mean, actually, in a track race is probably the worst because, um, you know, with triathlon, you, you at least will get through, I think, at least get through the spin in the bike unless, unless you, you really... Yeah, really having a bad day. I think, I think, I think because the draft legal nature of it. But I mean, there if there is one course, Kalabibari, if you're not on on the bike, you, you're done on the bike. I think that's probably if you're not fitting the bike. I think that's yeah, that's it. Yeah. We'll go uh, number two. What's your favorite race spot? Your favorite race or race location? Yeah. So I mean, I'll just name three because it's just simpler that way. Um, of course, the Tokyo Olympics is probably one of the most favorite spot for me personally because um, that was the first step in my dream completely. Um, the second spot is either it's a toss up between Tizivaris and Hamburg, and people who have been to Tizivaris will understand. Or not understand the reason why. Tizivaris, there's absolutely nothing there. It's in the middle of nowhere, and the whole town basically shuts down for like 72 hours because they got a big event, which is the triathlon. You know, and uh, everyone comes out to watch it, and it's just amazing that the the community is coming out to support triathlon, which is, I mean, we all know that triathlon is not a massively major sport, but I mean, they treat it as if it's like a huge sport. And I mean, that's, that's uh, incredible. And then Hamburg, well, Hamburg, I mean, it's, it's probably got the most amount of, uh, like past races. Yeah. And it's just a beautiful spot. I mean, Hamburg is one of the dream races. It's on cobbles. I mean, it's in Germany and you're going through the streets. It's, you have a massive crowd. I mean, that place is incredible too. Yeah. It's massive crowd, massive. As you said, Tizzy Hamburg, getting all those people out there, it really makes it something special. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And uh, number three, what's your worst travel experience? Well, actually, I uh, I was flying in China, um, and I didn't really see on the ticket because it had it from two airports. So I uh, and it was a domestic flight going to an international and. Sometimes when you're really tired and you don't have much money, you choose a flight where you choose the cheapest. And the cheapest was substantially cheaper. And I had no reason, I had no understanding why it was so much cheaper, but I was broke. So I chose the cheapest option. Little did I know that the two airports between international and domestic, even though they were called the exact same, was 80 kilometers apart. And it was 9 p.m. at night. So there were no buses, the free transfer buses, and I had a bike. And, uh. It's in Shanghai? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's in Shanghai. So I, re- I won this Continental Cup in China. And I, I was so stoked. And they actually gave me cash. They typically give you cash anyway, but they gave me cash. And I was like, oh, I've run out of Chinese dollars, but I've, I've got some American. And, uh, well, obviously, I won the race. So I had quite a few American dollars. So, uh, I just remember seeing the meter tick. And he was so annoyed that he had to take me into the car. But, I mean, they had to because I, I had no choice. And I, I sort of got the guy who was liaising with the taxis just to 
put me in there because I, I needed to catch the flight, otherwise I'm going to be stuck in China with, with, with not understanding the language or accommodation or whatever. Anyway, the last 30 minutes I realised, well, not 30 minutes, but it was a 40-minute to an hour drive. It was ridiculous. And the traffic wasn't great or anything like that. And the bill, I think, was about 100 US dollars. And I thought, um, I'll just give him a tip of like $50 because he's taken the bike and, and, uh, whatever. And he's gone ballistic that I didn't have enough Chinese money. And then I've given him an extra 50 US dollars and he's fight, he's fighting with me trying to pull my bike back in. And, and he's like, oh, you're going to take you to the police, you know, like, and he's, he's going crazy and I'm like, no, I, I need, I need to, like, I'm getting out of the taxi. Like, I've given you an extra 50 US dollars to the fee, you know, like, it's not like I'm not being generous. I'm, yes, I, it's not the, it's not completely right, but I've given you 50 US dollars. If you change it, like, you would probably be one up anyway. Like, I did everything I could. Like, I, I think I paid him 200 US for this. You know, like, it's a lot of money. Um, and I took it out of my prize money, but like he was, he was pulling my bag, and like he was trying to take me to the army, and like, geez, like it was crazy. And I just remember I was like, oh, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> <laughs> that was just, that was just, oh, I couldn't believe it. Oh, yeah, that that uh, trip between those airports, I've done the exact same yeah. thing at like nine p.m. Yeah. And- Someone just gets you to do a taxi. Luckily, we had some money. I was with uh, Daniel Coleman at the time. Oh, yeah. That was, that's a story for him to tell. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely yeah. crazy going between those two airports. Yeah, yeah. Do you think the flight was still cheaper with the. Uh, no, 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 it wasn't. wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing that again. I'm, check, I'm checking in the future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, question number four. Do you have a pre race meal? Uh, pizza, yeah. Pizza? Yeah. Every time? Yep. That's easy. Um, number five, last one. What's one thing you can't travel without? Bike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've told everyone else, don't say bike. I didn't tell you. <laughs> you got anything else or we'll go bike? Um, <laughs> I actually travel with my pillow everywhere around. Oh, yeah? Life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's, well, yeah. it's like home. Yeah, home exactly. Yeah, yeah it's, it's quick for me to sleep because it's familiar. Really? I, I hate terrible pillows. Yeah. 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 Well, great. Well, thank you very much, Kenji, for coming on. I really appreciate your time. And uh, having a chat to me, and wish you all the best in well, the next uh, year and a half leading into Paris. I'm sure you're doing well, and follow your results. Uh, thank you very much, Kurt, and I really appreciate it. Now it's been great. I've known you for a long time. Yeah, hopefully I can continue in the momentum, and uh, also, yeah, we'll see each other. I'm sure many times in the circuit, so yeah, it'll be great. Yeah. Thanks very much, Kenji. No worries, appreciate it.